Romans uh, chapter 1 is our text for today. So if you would turn there and we're going to uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we approach God's word. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to worship the Son whom you raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, reign over us and reign through your word. Cause your word to arise in our hearts and lives and for us to bow ourselves before you in obedience. May the gospel be proclaimed. And Father, if you would open our hearts and eyes by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The title of the message is The Son of God in Power. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was the descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish nations, to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you, you Romans, Paul's writing to the Romans, also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, and good God exist in a world so full of pain and evil? It's a common question raised by many in our culture today. The existence of suffering and evil causes some to think that if God exists at all, either he is not all-knowing, not good, or he must not be all-powerful. And as believers, we can't deny that the world is filled with countless instances of evil and suffering. In fact, In Scripture itself, God's people frequently question God's management of the world. One psalm goes so far as to question whether or not God is sleeping on the job. Many today, when you bring the gospel to them, might ask the question, but what about those who have never heard the gospel? It's usually phrased something like, what about the pygmies in Africa or some such thing. The Israelites had a different question. I would argue one that's even more poignant than that. Because the Israelites were the very ones that had heard, that to whom the very gospel itself had been revealed. The, the very truths had been given to them in the writings, in the scriptures. They received the revelation of God. And their question was more like, what about those who have? Forget about, about those who haven't. What about us? Was their fundamental question. You see, for them, the question was, how can the wicked continue to oppress and triumph over us, the people of God? Have your promises failed, God? Have they failed? Has God 
rejected his people? Does God lack the power to save? Now those are hard questions, but they don't come from opponents of the Bible. They come from authors and characters within the Bible. The Bible brings those tough questions to bear. Can God be vindicated from this charge? Can he be shown to be right? That's what vindicated means, shown to be in the right. Justified, we might say. Can, can God be justified in light of the suffering? In light of the evil? In light of the triumph of the wicked? Can God be vindicated? Can he be shown to be in the right? Is, to put it in another way, is God faithful to his promises? Or has he forsaken his people? Maybe you, maybe you've wondered. Have you ever wondered if God were sleeping on the job? If you've been around long enough to suffer greatly, you probably have wondered that a time or two. Maybe you've wondered whether or not God's forsaken you. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe, maybe you don't even know why. Maybe you think, oh, I've done everything I'm supposed to, and yet God's forsaken me. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead answers these questions and calls for a response from each of us. How? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead vindicate God? How does it... How does it show that God is faithful to his promises? How does it show that God is justified and in the right? How does it answer the question about how an all-powerful, all-knowing, and good God can exist in a world full of pain and suffering, to put it another way? I think Paul's letter to the Romans answers this question of God and his faithfulness, this issue of God being vindicated despite the evil and suffering. And we're going to explore it today under two headings. The first is the Son of God in weakness. The second heading is the Son of God in power. And then we're going to explore how we're called to respond to the resurrection under the third heading, the Son of God as Lord. So the Son of God in weakness, the Son of God in power, and the Son of God as Lord. So if you would, let's begin under the heading, the Son of God in weakness focus in on verse 3 here. I'm going to read verse 2 and 3 again. The gospel which he got, the gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. The, the gospel speaks of two stages of Jesus' existence as Messiah, as the Christ, as the Lord who is raised from the dead, the, the, the Lord who reigns, the, the Christ, the Messiah King to deliver the people of Israel. The first stage of that existence is that he has descended from David, literally according to the flesh. The NIV says, as to his earthly life, but the, the wording there is literally according to the flesh. He's descended from David according to the flesh. Well, what does that mean? Jesus had been born a Jew of the line of David. Now that qualified him to be the Messiah because the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, a son of David. You may recall in the Gospels many times you'll, you'll see Jesus referred to as the son of David. 
Okay, because he's qualified to be the Messiah. The expected deliverer. The Messiah was the expected deliverer of Israel. At his baptism, the Spirit anointed Jesus to do this role, to function as the Messiah, but in the realm of the flesh. He, in his earthly life, was the Messiah in weakness. Or we might say the suffering Messiah. What was this son of David supposed to do? What did Israel expect the son of David to do? Well, the Messiah of Israel's expectations answered to the kind of salvation or deliverance that they wanted. What, what kind of deliverance did they want? Well, if you were to drive by a church today and the name of that church were Deliverance Tabernacle, you might expect one of two things, that either they focus a lot on exercising demons from people, or that they focus a lot on addictions and people getting delivered from various addictions. So, deliverance tabernacle. If I told you this morning that I was going to talk to you about salvation, you might assume that I was going to talk about how you get to heaven. But neither of those would really encapsulate what the Israelites pictured when they thought of salvation or deliverance. By the way, salvation, deliverance... We're all, really, we're talking about the same thing, to be rescued from something. Okay. The salvation that the Israelites longed for was about something else. The Messiah, in their mind, will deliver us from our oppressors and save us from their bondage and oppression. Their longing for Messiah included this cry. How can the wicked continue, continue to oppress and triumph over us in contradiction to your promises? Have your promises failed, God? Send the Messiah. Show yourself to be faithful to your promises. Deliver us, O Lord. For instance, in Psalm 44, the psalmist pleads, Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of, our heart, of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord! Why do you sleep? There it is. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Or, for instance, in the 143rd Psalm, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. See, God saving them, relieving them, rescuing them is all about God's faithfulness and righteousness. God coming to their relief will vindicate God and show that he is faithful to his promises. Do not, verse 2, it continues, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Verse 7, Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I'll be like those who go down to the pit. God's faithfulness and righteousness was tied to his promises to relieve his people, to save them, to deliver them. Salvation and deliverance was from enemies that were pursuing them, crushing them, or oppressing them. God's righteousness was putting things right, 
his people being victorious, the wicked not triumphing over them. By definition, that was righteous. When God delivers his people as he promised he would, that is righteous. Salvation was a matter of whether or not God had rejected his people or whether or not he lacked the power to save. Righteousness, when they thought of the righteousness of God, we, we tend to think of the righteousness of God as this kind of abstract character that he has. But to them, the righteousness of God had more to do with God's relationship to his people. Is he fulfilling his promise? Is he defending his people? It wasn't just an abstract idea. It had to do with what was going to happen to them that week. Righteousness of God is important. This idea of salvation or deliverance would be more recognizable today in Christian refugees fleeing the persecution of ISIS in, say, Syria or other places, being chased from their homes, losing all their possessions, and their lives being threatened. Salvation to them would likely mean the enemy defeated, ISIS defeated, their homes and possessions restored, the threat of ISIS removed once and for all. That would be salvation. And that's the way that it's much closer to how Israel would have been looking for salvation. In Jesus' day, for instance, it would have meant deliverance from Rome's oppression, from unjust taxation, poverty and hunger, enslavement, and from the crucifixion of Israel's zealot sons. You see, their sons would rise up periodically, and when they were caught by the Romans, they'd be crucified one after the other after the other. That was Rome's way of crushing them with such cruel torture. You, you want to put it in terms that you can understand it? If you're a Republican, salvation is the Democrats lose. If you're a Democrat, salvation is the Republicans lose, okay? Now, I'm joking, but, but that gets closer. Now, take that to the, to the power of 10, and you're getting closer to what they would have thought about. I mean, we get all worked up over what's going to happen if. I was reading recently in some church history that I'm studying, and, and it's just fascinating how, you know, just after the, the nation was founded, the, the, the church began to think, oh no, the, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole nation is going to fall apart if Thomas Jefferson gets elected. <laughs> well, maybe they were, uh, you know, just a little bit exaggerated in their thinking of what might happen. But, but they felt they needed deliverance. Well, for Israel, it was much more at home than that because they were killing their sons. It, it meant they may not eat. It was much bigger than we think of it today. Rejection from God to the Jews or God lacking power to save would mean that Rome wins. That they continue to tax, oppress, and kill the sons of Israel at will. Enter Jesus. Jesus as the Son of God in weakness. Alas, a Savior, a Messiah, the Son of David. The Gospels clearly point out that that's who he was. The son of David, the, the expected Messiah was to come from that. He's the deliverer. Is this the one? Throughout the Old Testament, the question is raised. Is this one the one? Is this one the one? We get to Jesus. And here he is, and everything's pointing to him. Feeding the hungry masses met their expectations. It put things right. It was a righteous deed. Healing the sick set things right. Their expectations of the kind of Messiah and salvation that they expected might be revealed in the trick question they asked Jesus. But the only reason it would have worked was because of their expectations of Messiah. The question you may, might remember about taxes. Hey, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And of course he asked, well, show me the coin and so on and so forth. You know the story. But the question itself reveals their expectation. No Messiah would ever say it's okay to pay taxes to Rome, to Caesar. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. No, he's going to deliver us from this unjust taxation. And whatever else you might make of Jesus' answer, one thing he did not do was meet their expectations and tell them to rebel against Rome. Hopes were raised as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey colt, just as Solomon and other kings of Israel before him had. When they were coming to be inaugurated king, they would come in on this donkey colt and people would put palm branches on the road. So Jesus and his disciples are coming to Jerusalem and the people are excited. This is the one that we think he's the one. So they put palm branches down and what do they shout? Hosanna in the highest, which means what? Save us, deliver us, O Lord. But they were expecting a different kind of deliverance. And so they were a bit confused when he got to the city and instead of going and opposing the Roman rulers, he went to the temple and started opposing the religious leaders. Wait a second, you're supposed to deliver us from those guys, not these guys. You got the wrong guys, Jesus. You're you're chasing the Jewish leaders out, not the Roman rulers. Their hopes for deliverance from Rome might explain why they could. It, It seems so impossible to us. How could they possibly ask for Barabbas and leave Jesus to be crucified. Anyone knows that Barabbas was a bad guy. Not necessarily in their minds. Barabbas met more of their expectations of what a Messiah would do. Barabbas was in prison because he had killed in the name of freeing Israel from Roman oppression. And that's why the people at that point are, well, Jesus is just standing there submissive before Pilate. He's not doing anything about Pilate. Give us Barabbas. He'll do something. Crucify him. Crucify him. For those who believed in Jesus, his death only raised more questions. I mean, for those who didn't believe in Jesus, he's getting what he deserves. But for those who did believe in Jesus, who thought he was the Messiah, his death only raised more questions regarding whether or not God had forsaken his people, whether or not God was able to deliver from Roman power. By their understanding of a Messiah, the question of one of the criminals makes sense. Are you the the Christ, the Messiah? Save yourself and us. That's what Messiahs do. They're coming to save us from Roman rule. So first, you've got to deliver yourself. You can't just get yourself in trouble and not get out of it. That wouldn't make a good Messiah. So if you're a good Messiah, you can save yourself and save us. Or the other question that those coming by ask, if you're the Son of God more of a declaration, come down from the cross. It's not an unreasonable expectation. How can he deliver us if he can't even get himself down from the cross? He's no better off than anyone else that's been crucified by them. Jesus, according to the flesh, was the son of David, but he was more like Israel than he was like their great king David. He was more like one needing deliverance and dying without it than like one who's bringing deliverance. He was the Son of God in weakness. We could say that he's more like David when David was being pursued and chased by Saul through the wilderness than he was like King David on the throne. 
Jesus joined us in our humanity, in our utter weakness, in order that we might be raised with him into a new and powerful, powerful humanity under his glorious power. And let's look at that under the, the heading, the Son of God in power. Again, verse 2, we're going to focus on verse 4, but I want to read up to verse 4. So beginning in verse 2, the gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and, verse 4, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The man, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, was appointed to be something entirely new in the resurrection. Entirely new. Just as the eternal Son of God became something entirely new in the incarnation, that's Christmas, right? The eternal Son of God became something entirely new. Fully God, fully man. In one. A brand new existence. At Christmas... So, at the resurrection, Easter, Jesus is appointed to be something that, he, that had never existed before. Jesus, the man who died in weakness, was raised still fully human and installed as the Son of God with power. See, before Jesus became a man, he was the Son of God in power in heaven, but he wasn't a man. He was God only. He, he had no flesh. On his er- in his earthly life, he was the son of God in weakness. But after the resurrection, fully man, fully God, he is both son of man and son of God in power. After his arrest, denied by Peter three times, mocked and punched in his blindfolded face and told to prophesy who hit him. On trial before the Sanhedrin, when asked if he was the Messiah, Messiah, the coming king, to deliver Jesus answered this. He said, if I tell you, you will not believe. Why would they? I mean, he's standing there suffering. What kind of deliverance would that be? And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you see, something is about to change. Something is about to change. Something is going to shift from now on. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is right before he's crucified. He's referring to the resurrection and ascension. Basically, he's saying, hey, presently I am before you in weakness. But from now on, it indicates a change of status. In other words, I will not be before you in weakness anymore. I'll be before you as the Son of God in power at the right hand of God. Something is about to change. He's still the Son of Man. But the Son of Man has died and conquered death in the grave and is raised to life and seated at the right hand of God. Another way to look at what it means for him to be descended from David according to the flesh might be helpful. Jesus' birth as the son of David in Bethlehem qualified him to be the Messiah. However, his coronation, his crowning as king, Messiah king, wasn't until the resurrection. Jesus was the son of David in the realm of the flesh, but he became the powerful Messiah king in the realm of the spirit when he was raised from the dead. You know, if we zoom in at the end of the Gospels and 
or the beginning of Acts, the resurrection and the ascension are two very distinct events. He was raised, he hung out for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends to the right hand of God in heaven. But the rest of the, the, the New Testament often takes those events and collapses them into one and just refers to them as the resurrection. Kind of puts that all together at one point in time. It's through the resurrection, which includes in much of the New Testament the idea of the ascension, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God in power. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection is associated with Jesus' messianic reign and lordship. I'm going to read a list of scriptures, and I could add many to it. But I want you to notice the association, the connection between Jesus' messianic reign, him being Christ, and his lordship, between him being raised and seated as Messiah at the right hand of God and his lordship. Note, Matthew 28, 18. This occurs right immediately before the ascension. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to him. What happened? He'd just been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend. All authority has been given to him. Jesus, the, the one subject to the Roman whip and crucifixion from a human perspective. Now he reigns over everything in heaven and earth. Romans 14, 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. There's a resurrection so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So that he might be the Lord. Note his lordship connected to his resurrection. Ephesians 1, 20 and uh, following, speaks of the power which the Father exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And, note, connected to his being raised from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is uh, invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Again, note the connection between resurrection and reigning in power over all things. Another one, Philippians 2, verse 9 and following. After talking about how Jesus became obedient to death, it says, therefore, because he had become obedient to death, therefore God exalted him to the highest place when resurrection and ascension and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue profess allegiance. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, do you see the repeated connection between the resurrection slash ascension and the reign of Jesus Christ in power, the lordship of Jesus. This is what Daniel saw in his prophetic vision of the resurrected Christ. It says he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates God. This brings us right back to where we started. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates God. When I say it vindicates God, again, I mean it shows God to be in the right. shows Him to be faithful to His promises. To be righteous to His people. How does it do so? Well, again, in the face of all suffering. In the face of unanswered prayers. In the face of injustices. In the face of evil in the world. 
in the face of all who have followed him by faith and were left to die without deliverance, how does the resurrection vindicate God? In the face of Hebrews eleven thirty six through 39, which I think is relevant to the, the issue of why God needs vindication, it tells us there, some, some of those who had faith, faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. In other words, there wasn't a problem with their faith. Their faith was really, 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 really good. Yet, none of them received what had been promised. You could add Jesus to the list. He had faith. He was faithful. He obeyed the Father. He did whatever his Father asked him. And yet he died and was not delivered from that cross. He did not receive what had been promised until the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that it is never too late for God to save, to deliver, to rescue his people from trouble. I talked about this in a blog post this week, week, Hope in the Midst of Darkness. It's on our website. If you want to look more at at that issue of of never being too late. Theologians often focus on the resurrection of Jesus as vindicating Jesus' righteous life. That Jesus was faithful. And and it does just that. It does indeed do that. The scriptures speak to that. But I think here in Romans, Paul is speaking more to how it vindicates God and justifies God. Both equally. In the resurrection, God rescued Jesus from death. Saved him from the grave. And made him the son of God in power at his right hand as ruler over all the earth. Now, all who trust in him, who submit their allegiance to his lordship, as the one raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in power, will be saved also. They will be raised in him, made like him, as a human no longer subject to death. That's glorious. Amen? Well, we've examined what it means to, that, that Jesus was the Son of God in weakness and also what it means that he's the Son of God in power through the resurrection and ascension. Now, now let's look. We, we, we saw all that in the kind of the middle of the paragraph. Let's look at the beginning and the end of the paragraph and see how we're called to respond to the gospel, to respond to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in power. And we're going to look at this under the heading of the Son of God as Lord. Look with me at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Then jump down to verse 5. The middle part there is what we've been covering, the content of the gospel. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call All the Gentiles, all those non-Jewish nations, people from all the nations outside of Israel, all the Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also, you Romans, 
are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul is a servant, literally. He's a slave of Messiah King Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected and seated at the right hand of God in power, ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ got Paul on the Damascus Road intending to go do harm to Christians, but since he's Lord of everything, he called Paul to be a special emissary of his, an apostle set apart for the purpose of this proclamation about Jesus' reign. What was Paul's first words? Lord! (laughs) He recognized who he was. Lord! Paul's task is to call Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews, to the obedience that comes from faith. Not, Not the obedience that comes from the law, but the obedience that comes from faith. Literally, the obedience of faith. We have to kind of determine what does it mean, the obedience of faith. We'll look at that in just a moment. Paul even tells the Roman believers that they are among the Gentiles that were called through the gospel to belong to Jesus, the Messiah King. You see, up to that point, to the, to, to the time of the gospel, the Jews would have expected that the Messiah would come and Israel would be his emissaries to the rest of the world. And in Israel, they would, they would have to all submit to Israel. But now Paul says that no, even from amongst the Gentile nations, God is calling people to belong to him, to, to, to work in his government and to bring his reign to all the world. What a crazy notion. What was radical in Paul's day. And they're called to the obedience of faith. And, and if you are here today and you're hearing this gospel as a Gentile, Paul, through this letter, is calling you to the obedience of faith also. You are called to belong to Jesus, the Messianic King, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who reigns over everything and is at the right hand of God. But what is this obedience of faith? obedience of faith. It's kind of an odd expression. It's not one that we are particularly familiar with, despite the fact that it's been sitting there in our Bibles and the letter to the Romans in a couple of places for a long time. But we're not particularly familiar with it. Paul was a Jew, and as verse 2 told us, he was speaking of what fulfills the Hebrew Scriptures. In Hebrew, there was not a word for obey or obedience as something that was distinct unto itself, as a concept by itself. The word that they had was here, as in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, implied, obey, O Israel. You hear and you respond to what you hear. So they they said hear, and hear meant obey. But we have in our day and age a concept of obey that's not necessarily tied to here, although it logically should be. It's not necessarily tied. But obedience is proper hearing. To hear and believe or to trust the Lord is to obey the Lord. If I hear Him and I trust Him, I obey Him. Okay? Adam, for instance, we're familiar with the story. He heard the command of the Lord not to eat from every any. Uh, Not to eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden. He could eat from every other tree. But he did not trust that command. He heard the serpent and trusted the serpent. And therefore he disobeyed God and obeyed the serpent. Romans 5.19 tells us a little bit about that story. As I paraphrase it briefly, 
It says, just as through Adam's disobedience, in other words, through Adam's hearing without trusting, hence disobedience, made many sinners, Jesus Christ's obedience, in other words, he heard the Father's voice and he always trusted the Father and he always did what the Father wanted, right? So Jesus hearing and trusting his obedience led to one act of righteousness, the cross. He laid down his life. That's the one act of righteousness he's referring to. Obedience to the point of death. And therefore, to the justification of many. Now, interestingly enough, the Greek word that Paul chooses to use here for obedience, which means obedience, if you look at the etymology of it, if you just look at the word, the word looks like taking the word for hear and the word by and slamming them together and you just by hearing. It meant obedience, but how do you obey? By hearing. That's the noun form of the word, by hearing, if you will. The, the, the verbal form is used in the book of Acts. Chapter 12, the story of the angel releasing Peter. Peter's sleeping in the prison. going to probably be killed the next day. The church is at Mary's house praying. The angel wakes Peter up, sends him over there. Mary arrives and he's knocking at the door. We read in verse 13 of Acts 12, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. That word that's translated to answer is just this verbal form of this word to obey by hearing. In other words, Peter knocks. She hears a knock, and what does she do? Immediately opens the door. You go to get That's what you do. I hear something. I respond to what I hear. That's what obedience is. The obedience of faith is the obedience that comes from trusting the one we hear it from, the Lord Jesus Christ. One lexicon defining this word says that terms expressing the concept of obedience may frequently be rendered in some languages as to do what one says or to carry out someone's orders. The obedience of faith is our response to hearing, the knock at the door, if you will, our response to hearing about the appointment of Jesus as the Son of God in power. It is hearing that Jesus has been appointed Lord, trusting that and obeying Him, and it will result in righteousness. Paul begins and ends his letter talking about his commission to call Gentiles to the obedience of faith. We've just read where he begins it, but let's look at the end of the letter. Chapter 16, verse 25 and following. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, the message about the Son of God, concerning the Son of God. Here, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. And what is that message? So that all Gentiles might come. The purpose of his apostleship and his preaching and proclamation is so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So there it is at the end of the letter. It's also in the middle of the letter, at the heart of what Paul says in the middle of the letter in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone As obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, it is in hearing Jesus, the Messiah King, who sits at the right hand of God, reigning in power, the Son of God in power, and obeying Him that defines what righteousness is. When we obey Him... It leads to righteousness. 
We're not called to obey the, the, the non-Jewish nations. We're not called to obey the law of Moses. That's not what leads to righteousness. We're called to obey Jesus Christ. That's what leads to righteousness. In Romans 6, Paul is talking about baptism. And then he suddenly talks about slaves to righteousness and how they're related together. Why? Because it's in that baptism that we're swearing allegiance to Jesus as king. And we're being identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're committing ourselves as to be slaves of Jesus Christ, just as Paul was a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul had been made a slave, Romans 1.1, of Jesus Christ through the grace of the gospel. And now you and I are called to be slaves of Jesus Christ, to the obedience of faith. That's what he's talking about. Resulting in righteousness through that same gospel. But by understanding the meaning of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ now reigns as the Son of God in power, we're now ready to understand a familiar and often abused verse of Scripture. You've probably heard this verse. Romans 10, 8 through 10, Paul writes, The message concerning faith that we proclaim, in other words, the gospel that calls us to the obedience of faith, the message concerning faith that we proclaim, it says, verse 9, If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with the heart you believe and are justified, and it is with the mouth you confess or profess your faith and are saved. Now, this is often turned into some sort of magic formula. If I can just get you to say these words and repeat after me, you'll be saved, and you can go to heaven, and so on and so forth. But that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. The word for declare in verse 9 Profess in verse 10, same word. If you declare with your mouth or uh, it's with the mouth you profess and are saved. Same word in, in the original language. That word means not just to say it. That's not what the word means. It's a commitment to someone or something, in this case, Jesus, as Lord. It's declaring allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's declaring, if you will, that, that you are a slave of Jesus Christ. See, in other words... I believe in my heart that he is the son of God in power. He's been raised from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of God and he reigns over everything in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I profess my allegiance to him and I am now his servant. That's what my life is for. And when we do that, we will be saved because we are joined together with him. And... We've been raised with him, and therefore, it doesn't matter what happens to us. We will be raised with him, and we will live forever. Yes, but it transforms us now. To whom is your allegiance? Have you sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ? Have you professed your allegiance? You believe that he's raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God? Great. Have you professed your allegiance? Have you committed your life to be his servant, to be his slave? Actually, they use the word slave. Paul did. We we, we soften it by translating it servant, but it's it's slave. We have no rights. We, we, We lay down our rights and submit them to him. To whom is your allegiance? And in Paul's day, people were to profess Caesar as Lord. The gospel came and said, no, he's not. Jesus is Lord. Caesar comes in many forms. And I'm not referring to myself. 
for our guests, that's my last name, but <clears throat> the lordship of Jesus supersedes every form that Caesar comes in. For some, it might be Donald Trump. For others, it might be the Democrat Party. For others, the Republican Party. For some, the Constitution. For others, it's money, success, or your own family. Listen, Jesus reigns over all. To what or whom is your allegiance? What's your cause? What do you live for? If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, it better be Jesus Christ that you live for. He is your cause and his gospel is your cause. The gospel calls you to swear your allegiance to the risen Lord, the one who reigns at the right hand of God in power, to submit yourself to him as a servant or slave of unto righteousness. And righteousness is now defined as obedience to him and his ways. Well, in closing, just a couple of quick thoughts. What is the Messiah of your expectations? What's the salvation that you're looking for? Many are still pursuing a Messiah who provides us with every earthly comfort. And you can tell that by the books we read, the churches we attend, where we're told that we can have all those earthly comforts. But such a Messiah is not a crucified Messiah, and therefore he's not the one that's been resurrected and reigning in power at the right hand of God either. See, this applies to us right here in Tampa Bay today. The people of Israel asked, have you rejected us? Are you sleeping? Jesus joined them in their humanity and died asking, why have you forsaken me? In order that not only could they be saved, but according to Paul, so that all the non-Jews of every nation could now be saved. Whether they be the pygmies in Africa, the Spaniards, the Brits, the Indians, the Syrians, the Americans, the Persians, and every other person under heaven, that the gospel can now go to all, that all might be saved. Jesus joined humanity in our weakness in order that all who trust in him, all who believe and submit to him, might be raised with him into a new and powerful humanity under his glorious power. I pray that we all believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and therefore swear our allegiance completely and totally to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, work in hearts, even now, even today, even in this moment, by your Spirit, to bow, to submit ourselves to you, to break us in our pride, Humble us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.